Welcome to 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan, an in-depth look at our industry from our very own Chief Medical Officer, who will talk with other medical and industry professionals on the changing and evolving landscape of the healthcare system from the inside. And now, live from Zero Studios, our very own infectious disease expert with a contagious personality, Dr. Stan Schwartz. Good afternoon. I'd like to welcome everybody to our April edition of 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan. That's me, Dr. Stan Schwartz, Chief Medical Officer at ZeroCard, an internal medicine and infectious disease doctor who's very interested in all aspects of healthcare. I've got a great guest today. I'd like to introduce Dr. John Henning Schumann. Dr. Schumann is the president of the University of Oklahoma, Tulsa. And interestingly, he's the prescribing kind of doctor, not the philosophizing kind of doctor. He's got a very big worldview on healthcare, on physician education. And I thought it'd be very interesting to our audience to hear about what is going on with physician education. Dr. Schumann sent me an article from the New York Times a few weeks ago, talking about how we have a problem in this country, not with the number of doctors, but with the amount of physician education opportunities we have. So with that, let me introduce Dr. Schumann and tell us about why we have enough doctors, but we can't educate them. <laughs> well, thanks. It's very nice to be here. And thank you to you, Stan. Um, I mean, even the um, premise there is debatable. I, many, many experts, including the AAMC, Association of American Medical Colleges, probably professes, we probably have actually a shortage of physicians and by say 2030 or beyond, we're gonna have anywhere, depending on what number you, the low end of the estimate is probably 40,000, the higher end uh, closer to 150,000 uh, doctors short. So even if you believe we have enough right now, what we have is sort of a misalignment between uh, the number of doctors and then the number of doctors who wanna perform certain specialties. And the way this manifests, that article that I sent you from New York Times really talked about thousands of doctors in America who can't get a job. Now, these are medical school graduates who can't find residency slots. So over the last two decades, we've grown uh, by about slightly more than 20% and either through both the formation of new medical schools, but also expansion of the existing medical school class sizes. We have, you know, three to 4,000 more medical students that graduate every year. And that total number is about, you know, just south of 20,000. So it went from about 16,000 to 19,000 that graduate every year. Now, all of those US medical students can find spots, but sometimes in that percentage in the national matching program is around anywhere from 92 to 94% in a given year. I think it was 92% this year in 2021, but that leaves 6% that don't match. Now that's usually because these are people who wanna match in a highly competitive field and then they can't find a spot. So it's a little bit of musical chairs, but it's also musical chairs for uh, both US citizens who go to offshore medical schools or, or uh, medical schools in other countries, and then also international medical graduates who can't find spots. And they match much more close to 50%. And that's assuming that they, um, that they actually go into the match. There's, in other words, there's many more of those graduates, that, and many of them don't even go into the match anymore after several years of frustration of not entering the match. And so that's why we have, doctor, we, we have doctors who can't really practice because without doing the residency program, it's, hard to, it, it, it's impossible to get board certification, for example. 
So the, the, the matching program, for those who aren't familiar, is kind of electronic dating for doctors and hospitals to get doctors who finish medical schools into hospital residencies. And by the way, if you're listening live to this podcast, please use the question and answers at the bottom of your screen, leave a question, and we will do our very best to get to it. So is this affecting primary care doctors, secondary doctors, specialty doctors, or is, is it disproportionate for one or the other? Um, that's a good question. I, you know, the, the number, I mean, the fundamental problem is that we've had a, a cap on the number of Medicare-funded GME, that's graduate medical education slots in the United States since 1997. And it hasn't gone up. And so, you know, if you're if you're putting more students into the system, but you haven't uh, increased the number of seats available, you're going to create that musical chair situation. And so that that is a problem. Um, you know, it turns out if you if you're a graduate of of an allopathic or osteopathic medical school in the United States and you want to match in a primary care specialty, you're not going to have a problem. I mean, those residency programs across in total don't fill. They still don't fill. They come close, but they they still don't fill. So. That means if you're an international medical graduate, you know, and you and you want to land a spot, you're much better off going into primary care. But uh, you, you know, we've talked about this. There's a relative shortage of primary care because there's so many competing forces. For example, I was an internal medicine residency program director, and nobody wants to do the job I do, which is outpatient uh, internal medicine. All of my graduates, virtually all of my graduates, the ones that didn't subspecialize, which were many, they would go into fellowships, but the vast majority would become hospitalists because they can come right out of residency, use the skills they've learned in residency, doing things like putting in central lines or maybe lumbar punctures. They want to keep those skills up and they want to work in hospitals where the pay is often better and where the lifestyle may be more conducive. They work 12 hour shifts, seven days a week, and then maybe be off, are off the next seven days. And that's very appealing to young people, younger people, uh, especially the higher pay with the with the large debt service that they have coming out of medical school. So it, it, there, there's that. And then there's other, you know, many more uh, doctors are coming out of the primary care workforce to, you know, making themselves more exclusive, exclusive, as it were, working in direct primary care or concierge medicine. And then you have folks, you know, in the pandemic that have uh, pandemics largely pushed some, some more and more doctors into virtual medicine. Now that, that may be something that actually expands the access of people to primary care. So that, you know, that's what a lot of experts think will outlive the pandemic. We'll have more and more, uh, see virtual and telemedicine be become much more of a, of a regular occurrence. Now your school also educates non-physician practitioners like nurse practitioners, uh, physician assistants. Do they have to go through the same matching program? No, it's a good question. You can go to a, so I'll, you know, physician assistant program requirements vary. Uh, they vary state by state. They even vary a little bit region by region. So um, at our program, at what's known as the OUTU School of Community Medicine, the PA program, we only have 25 spots per year, but we get over 800 applications every year for that class size of 25. So that yeah. just shows you the demand. Uh, it's, I mean, it's very hard to even get in. Part of the bottleneck there is we train many more PAs if we could, but uh, there aren't enough clinical training sites. That is, we can't get you know community spots or hospital spots for the PAs to ha have enough places to in which to do their clinical rotations. Um, but no, they can they go through our program is thirty months. It's two and a half years, and after two and a half years, they get a master's degree, and then they are uh, they pass a licensure exam, and then they're good to go. They can get hired and work as a PA. They don't have to do a residency program at all. So there's no bottleneck. In other words, in fact, it's like a giant uh, 
maw or an abyss. I mean, they can, they can, the world's their oyster. Uh, there's so many spots available for physician assistants that if I were a young person wanting to work in healthcare, uh, or if I had already had incurred family obligations or things like that, I would think long and hard about whether I wanted to go through the long training it takes to become a physician, going through college, medical school, residency, consider fellowship. I mean, that's a lot of years compared to 30 months and ready to go. Now, obviously, a physician earns more money, um, and a physician definitely is probably always going to have more prestige, but it's a, it's a serious economic consideration when you think about opportunity cost. Do you foresee that these advanced non-physician practitioners are going to fill the primary care void? Yes, I do. I mean, I think it's, I think it's happening now. Um, now, physician assistants are always going to practice really in association with or underneath physicians. And so one physician can supervise many physician assistants, and we'll continue to see that probably grow until, you know, as comes to pass, perhaps some error or some kind of thing that leads us to want to regroup and have more physicians. I think, I think as patients, we get more and more comfortable with the idea of, uh, ancil- you know, whether we call them mid-level providers, ancillary providers, other, other clinic, I'll just say other clinicians, we, we're, we get more and more comfortable. My wife is a family doctor. She sees a nurse practitioner for her primary care. She's very happy with it. She saw a nurse midwife to deliver our children. Um, you know, my wife and I are probably more on the, you know, spectrum, the side of the spectrum that says we're, we're very happy with, with non-physician practitioners. Um, not everyone's that comfortable, but, um, you know, my wife's feeling is if someone has a, a good deal of experience, they've been out in the community or been in practice for a long time, it's not the same as a residency, but if they've been, you know, practicing for five years or, you know, longer than that, then they have a, a, good, en- a good enough amount of experience. They'll have seen the breadth of problems that come up in primary care and, they, and uh, they're, you know, going to be just as effective as a doctor. And we know that typically they're, you know, they're paid less. And that's why a lot of healthcare systems have looked to, you know, really move toward more physician assistants and nurse practitioners. Now, interestingly, here in Tulsa, we see this interesting situation develop where you have a primary care doctor, you often can't get in to see the doctor when you're sick. So we have a, an incredible plethora of urgent care centers here in Tulsa. We, our guest last month was Quick Trip that's putting up 15 urgent care centers in Northeastern Oklahoma to add to the 44 we already had. So it seems like, you know, you're, we may get to a point where your doctor's behind a computer you see a physician assistant, a nurse practitioner for routine care. If you're a little sick, you go to urgent care. And if you're a lot sick, you go to the hospital. But, you know, your first stop isn't necessarily your doctor's office anymore. Well, that's true. I think these competing business models have really, in a way, siphoned off. I mean, I'll be honest. I think that as medical professionals, we've done it to ourselves. I mean, we used to have the kind of Norman Rockwell vision of uh, the doctor at the center. It was more paternalistic. We we were the authority and people came to us for our advice, our laying on of hands, perhaps our wisdom, our diagnostic acumen, and for our therapeutic knowledge and skill. And over time, as we have uh, agglomerated, we've built bigger and bigger practices for good reasons. I mean, for um, pooling risk liability, for pooling uh, overhead costs, um, for uh, 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 operational uh, efficiencies. Not to mention the fact, if you you know get into the 21st century, you talk about electronic electronification of the medical record. Those are extremely high costs, and uh, so it's it's the very rare you know solo practitioner or um, you know small practice that can bear those uh, overhead costs. So it makes a lot of sense 
especially for the younger generation that's younger than myself, you know, they, they are okay being employees. They don't want the responsibility or the risk or the burdens of being their own, you know, business people, their own, incorp their own corporation. They'd much rather just work for, be at the hospital, the healthcare facility, the, the, the healthcare uh, program and, uh, and let, let the, let the corporation assume the risk, you know, earn the salary with, you know, plus or minus incentives and, and go from there. But uh, we have, so in other words, we, we've, we've done that by, uh, in addition, we have um, made ourselves a little too precious. We, you know, we, we like the nine to five hours and we're not as convenient for our patients. You know, I'm, I'm not saying this is everybody, obviously some, some practices are open late. They have evening hours, some have weekend hours, but a lot of doctor's offices are very, you know, how, how many of us have called our doctor's office? If you're, this is an emergency, please dial 911. If you want to make an appointment, press one. If you want to talk to a nurse, press two. And the bottom line is you're just going to hold. And it's it's very not user-friendly. It's not like calling, you know, Mrs. Jones, who used to work the front desk at your doctor's office, and you get a human being on the phone and all that. So by what I'm saying is the marketplace has evolved. And so um, there are just many, many more options, uh, many of which, you know, start right here with an app or something where you can answer a few questions, screening questions, and get get funneled through uh, whether it's, you know, it's not often directly to the doctor, but it can be through to a certain service. So there are just many more business models. And you mentioned urgent care. I mean, this, this profusion of urgent care centers is really kind of bewildering, to be honest. But I think what, what's happened is people have done an economic analysis and said, hey, we can treat a lot of what walks in the door, maybe three quarters of the conditions. We can do it inexpensively. Uh, we can do it quickly. We can do it to a high degree of patient satisfaction. And we're going to kind of siphon off that business. That's a business for us to go into. And they don't have the obligations of continuity of care and kind of a lifetime obligation. And so, you know, I'm not saying it's good or bad. I'm just saying that's kind of the reality of the marketplace that's evolved. I mean, only in America, right? Do you think, and you and I had a conversation some time ago about medical education debt. And, you know, there are medical schools like my old alma mater, New York University, which have zero tuition now. Do you think medical school debt is influencing people's decisions to a large extent? Well, there's no doubt about that. I mean, the average debt of a medical school graduate in the U.S. is on the order of $200,000. I mean, that's a significant debt. It's a mortgage. So many, most, I think the most majority, so over 50% of students are graduating with that amount of debt. So you're, you're, you got a mortgage for your debt, a mortgage for your student debt, and then you're, you know, if you want to buy a house or something, it's like you're looking at a lot of debt. So there's no question that people are financially motivated here. And, you know, we see this manifest another way. The most competitive specialties are the so-called road uh, specialties. That stands for radiology, ophthalmology, anesthesia, and dermatology. Now there are other high paying specialties like neurosurgery or orthopedics. Those are also competitive, hard to get into them, but take, uh, you know, even more years of training. But those four, the so-called road ones, they're always oversubscribed. And so the musical chairs is highly acute in that situation. You have many more graduates wanting to go into those fields then there are seats available. And so you wind up with some unhappy people who don't aren't able to match into those fields. Um, and those fields typically, um, you know, pay very well. And they, they also tend to have uh, more controlled hours. If you think about dermatology, radiology, and anesthesia, ophthalmology, you know, there are emergencies in ophthalmology, but, you know, maybe you have a group that's large enough to, to handle some of those. But it's, so it's understandable. People, people go into subspecialties. That's, often bit of motivation. There's probably more prestige associated with them, but then there's there's usually higher pay associated, we know, with the um, procedural specialties. So, you know, we don't have central planning in this country. 
So the market and other forces, lifestyle changes, generational changes are driving this migration away from primary care, which to a large extent has a big impact on employers, you know, because without substantial evidence-based primary care, employers will wind up spending more money. Is any, who looks at this? I mean, who are the influencers to say, you know, we're not staffing up primary care the way we need to, or is it not believed to be a problem? Well, I think health services researchers and health economists have been saying almost for decades in the United States that we have undervalued primary care, both in terms of how we uh, encourage people to go into the field and then how we uh, reimburse it. So, you know, most the most advanced healthcare systems or those that are considered the most advanced have a, a base of about 50% primary care and 50% specialty care. And in the US, it's it's inverted. It's about 20, 80, 20% primary care and 80% specialty care. So it's no wonder we spend so much when we have a plethora of specialists who are doing, you know, high dollar care with lots and lots of attendant procedures and, you know, techno technologies and, and more advanced testing. Um, so there's a skew that way. Um, I think that's who's that's who's been looking at it, you know, and then, of course, you know, your government employees are looking at that too. your government policymakers. Um, but we haven't been successful. You know, I graduated uh, medical school in 1997. That was during the height of the Clinton years. The, the Clinton health care plan had been already defeated by that point. But there was a lot of rhetoric, a lot of uh, there was a real call to for graduates to go into primary care. And there were many incentive programs. There were loan repayment programs. I mean, there still are some of these. Um, but it was, it seemed like there were many more in my day and there was a lot of encouragement to go into primary care. There was an actual sort of ethos about it. And I, I fell for a hook, line and singer. I thought, wow, if, I was, I was literally told by people, uh, in my medical school career advisors that if I tried to go into anesthesia or radiology, I might well not get a job once I came out of residency. So it was, I was scared away from it. Um, and I believed it. I, and I thought, uh, you know, I need to go into primary care because it's a mission driven field. And uh, I don't regret it. I mean, I sometimes think, well, maybe there, there, I should have thought about more, more about a specialty. But um, you know, primary care is hard. It's hard because you you see so many undifferentiated complaints, and there is so much uh, psychology and mental health involved that you often feel like, wow, you know, hey, I didn't go into psychiatry, but but so much is inflected with with mental health. So um, it's it's a tough it's a tough calling, and um, you know, you don't get a lot of, you know, inside the profession, I think you don't get a lot of respect to your peers. On the other hand, the patients love you. Patients want primary care doctors. And, you know, the average wait time to get a new primary care appointment is very long, depending on where you live in the country. And it, it may, may even be impossible in some parts of the country. So, um, you know, primary care is valued. And, and we might see the marketplace swing back because of the, the sort of shortage of primary care if the demand is there. Now, other places are going to fill it. You know, scalability is a big buzzword in entrepreneurialism. But I mean, again, this new technology or the, the new apps that use this technology are going to allow us to, um, you know, in a sense, scale this. So if you can, if, you know, if you can see a physician somewhere in a, in a black box or in a phone or in a computer screen somewhere uh, who may or may not be in your, your locality or jurisdiction, you know, that's going to um, open up more opportunities for patients to get, you know, be it primary care or urgent care. If you don't mind my asking about this, I know that the other Dr. Schumann, your spouse, is a primary care doctor. And how is she spending her days now? Well, she's done. She, she's worn a lot of hats, but she's gone from um, she was a uh, 
got a scholarship for medical school for the, for the National Health Service Corps. So I had to work in an underserved area for, I think it was four years after medical school. So she chose to work in a federally qualified community health center on the south side of Chicago. When we moved to Tulsa, she was working in the dean's office here doing medical education, but her clinical site was also at an FQHC, Morton. Uh, and then subsequently she became medical director at a different FQHC. So that's been her calling. Interestingly, when our state was thinking about going to managed care Medicare, excuse me, managed care Medicaid, she um, was recruited for one of those jobs at an insurance company. And she never thought she'd do that, but she wound up working at an insurance company to learn that side of the business. We didn't actually go to managed care Medicaid four years ago. We're about to do that now. So she's being recruited for that again. In the meantime, during the pandemic, she felt a calling to get back into full-time clinical care and wound up doing telemedicine. So she works for a company that provides online healthcare and does mostly urgent care, 40 hours a week of virtual visits from our home office. Wow, that's a lifestyle change. It really is, yeah. It's, it's good for the atmosphere too, no driving. Right, it's just the electricity. There's no, but there's no, uh, we think no burning of fossil fuels. I mean, I guess the natural gas that creates the electricity. So for the employers and the benefit advisors who are listening today, what is the message from someone like yourself, you know, a university president who oversees medical education? What's the message for what they should expect going forward as far as physician supply? What can they do to make a difference? What can they do to make their voices heard? Well, um, there's a number of things you could do. So um, obviously be vocal with your uh, where you purchase your group health insurance plan, you know, by being clear about what it is you and or your employees want. That's the, that's for starters. And that's going to be help you in your negotiations. The second thing is um, I'm pretty much betting that any, any uh, insurance provider is going to be offering uh, telemedicine options for the insured lives that, that are going to be covered under your plans. And uh, I would highly encourage your employees to make use of that opportunity because I think many plans did offer those opportunities, but they were, since they were poorly or not reimbursed in the past, they weren't sort of fully staffed and they weren't, we hadn't worked out a lot of the bugs. And so I think the pandemic has supercharged that. And so now I think it's much more of a reality. I think patients as, as clients of the healthcare system really like the convenience. And I think employers are going to like it too. It's much easier if your employee can you know, from the confines of an office, although who's going to go back to an office after a pandemic, but the confines of your office, your employee can, uh, can see their, a provider, a doctor, a clinician on a, on a screen without having to leave the office, take the travel time, et cetera. So that's, that's one thing. Another thing is um, you had a guest on recently, a guy named Mark Bloom, who works for a company called Solidaritas. More companies are, because of the uh, inexorable increase in the amount of premiums that uh, uh, companies and people pay for health coverage, um, you're going to see more and more folks going into direct primary care. So contracting directly with primary care providers and sort of cutting out the middleman. So what some companies are doing are, are uh, getting high deductible policies for hospital care and then taking primary care and just paying cash over the barrel or, or for you know, a per member per month fee uh, for something like that. And that's Solidarity does that with labor unions, which is a very interesting model. Um, but I think there are other companies that that can look at that model because, of course, many doctors have found, you know, being on the hamster wheel, they're unsatisfied, you know, having to churn through lots of visits. So one way they've taken back some measure of control is by going into direct primary care themselves, where they charge like a retainer fee or a monthly charge for patients to, quote unquote, belong to their practice, but with the promise and an offering of more access 
uh, to the care and, and longer appointments and things like that and annual physicals. So I think we're going to see more of that. I, it, basically, what it boils down to is I think if the old model of having a long-term relationship with a primary care physician is sadly is really going away. I think if you want something like that, it's going to be at a premium. You're going to have to essentially pay for the privilege of having a long-term relationship with a primary care doctor. And then lastly, you know, if you're worried about the potential shortfall in the number of doctors over the next decade, decade and a half, which, you know, many experts agree on, although I've seen those predictions kind of ad infinitum, you know, over the years, but it does seem like uh, with an aging and growing population that we are going to need more providers, you know, whether that happens to be doctors or other clinicians is, is, a, is a whole debate. That said, it does seem counterproductive to have a cap on the number of Medicare funded residency slots at 1997 levels. We're coming up on 25 years since that. So um, Senator Menendez from New Jersey has introduced legislation to expand the number of uh, Medicare funded graduate medical education slots. And you could talk to your state senators about supporting his bill. It's, it hasn't uh, been heard on the floor of the Senator. There's no vote that's been taken on it. So that's another possibility. Do we know anything about political party posturing on that? Well, it's I, I don't know the specifics to be honest. I'm not. I haven't. I haven't briefed myself recently. But suffice it to say, it's a pretty bipartisan issue because um, wherever you fall on the political spectrum, everybody wants health care. Everybody wants to get it for themselves and their family. On the other hand, everybody wants it in their district or their state. You know, you want the healthcare uh, professionals in your state because they're highly educated citizens who, you know, pay taxes and have a good income, and and then therefore, you know, put money into the state and federal. Uh, revenue systems. And moreover, if, if you have a state, you're lucky enough to have a state with one or more medical schools or academic medical centers, uh, those are those are bastions of research that drive innovation. And then they're, you know, and, they, and they're adding knowledge workers to the economy. So those, those are all good things. So I think it plays to a bipartisan audience. Um, you know, you mentioned about concierge care. You know, I read once that the average fee-for-service primary care doc has a panel of between 1,500 and 2,000 patients, and the average concierge doctor has a panel below 1,000 patients, I think typically 600 to 800 patients. So for each doctor that migrates from the old office with a shingle outside and goes into you know, direct or concierge primary care, it looks like we leave several hundred patients without a doctor. I couldn't agree with you more. You said it. <laughs> I mean, it's another example of musical chairs. The musical chair participants in the game this time are the patients, you know, us. I mean, patients are us too. Um, so, you know, if you if you carry that thought model out, I mean, people are left out in the cold in the in the hundreds, or you know, if you multiply that over many thousand, it's you know, thousands and thousands or millions of people. And who gets left behind, right? Well, we know it's the people who don't pay the fee to belong to the practice or who don't have the wherewithal, whether it's financial or emotional or intellectual to, you know, jump through the hoops to get into those practices. And then, uh, you know, so I, I think when concierge medicine came out, there was a pretty strong distaste on the part of a lot of physicians. Certainly academic physicians had a strong distaste for it because a lot of us go into academia for the kind of high-minded reason of we want to take care of all comers and we want to think about healthcare in this sort of um, intellectual, uh, you know, emotional, spiritual sense. And by limiting our practice, we're, uh, in a sense, closing, closing the doors to some people. On the other hand, concierge medicine has been around long enough now that, uh, you know, there's enough people doing it and it's really lasted and it's, it's almost institutionalized itself. So 
you know, direct primary care is a, is a more palatable vision of concierge. I'm, I have friends that, that work in direct primary care and they get, they do not like it if I lump them with concierge doctors, but let I me, mean, let's be honest. It is what it is. If you're paying a fee to belong to a practice, whether you call it concierge or direct primary care, I mean, the direct primary care folks say they offer more services at a lower price and that kind of thing, um, which is true, I suppose. But um, in any event, it, it just limits the number of patients that can be seen. There's no, there's no question about that. So we're just about out of time. Uh, if you have any questions, please put them up in the questions and answers. Uh, we'd like to answer any questions that the live audience has if you're listening live. Dr. Shibin, you do a radio show every Monday. Would you mind telling our audience about it? Because I've listened into it and it's really interesting. Well, thank you. Um, yeah, it's, it's uh, on Public Radio Tulsa. It's KWGS Radio is our public radio station here in town. And um, the, uh, the longtime daily, I call it public affairs and culture show, is called Studio Tulsa. It's a 30-minute it's a interview show that airs every day at 1130 in the morning and then rebroadcast 730 at night. And uh, through a series of, I don't know, I used to be a blogger. I guess it started from that and then doing radio commentaries. Um, I became the permanent guest host. Um, on Mondays, and thus we call it Medical Monday as a sort of a riff and a joke on Science Friday, which is another uh, public radio show out of WNYC. And so um, I have on guests, sometimes they're doctors, sometimes they're nurses, sometimes they're journalists, they're often book authors, they're often pundits, um, and sometimes they're patient advocates. I mean, I, they, and we talk about everything under the sun. It, um, the one thing it's not, it's not a call-in show. So some people hear that I do a medical show and they think, oh, do people call in and talk about their back pain or something? It's not that. So it's basically an interview show and we talk about, you know, we often talk about big things like healthcare policy, but there are some local things too. We, we talk about social determinants of health. So we, we, we might talk about the, uh, or might interview someone from the food bank in, uh, in Tulsa, or we might talk about mental health here in uh, Tulsa or in the state of Oklahoma, but we might also talk about something national um, or, a, or a book. I mean, we have one specialty I think I have, I, I read a lot of physician memoirs. And so I love it. I get, we, the station gets sent a lot of those books and, you know, there's some pretty good writers out there, you know, the Atul Gawande's or the, um, uh, there's a, there's a writer out of Mass General Hospital named Suzanne Coben, who has a really lovely memoir coming out soon. I'm going to interview her soon. I'm, I'm, uh, you know, that, that kind of thing. So before we leave, let me ask you one question. What's the bright light, the shining light that you see for healthcare and medical education that you, you, your university aspires to and that you hope comes true? Well, you know, I think that's why I'm in education. There's no doubt that the bright light is, is our youth, are the, are the folks, the young people that want to go in and, and feel the calling to go into healthcare. Uh, and certainly the pandemic has been an absolute turbocharger for that too. We're seeing record numbers of applicants to medical schools, public health schools, nursing schools. Um, and so that kind of positive energy to try to make a difference in the world and help and solve some of these huge societal and you know humanitarian uh, level conundra are really what inspire me and uh, you know th that's really the bright light and, and what I think we're, we're going to see is continued innovation uh, you know things like zero health you know where we, we uh, actually think through this problem we have created in the United States of this very aberrant healthcare system that seems to rely on some free market principles but some sort of government controlled mechanisms and what we wind up with is, is a an amalgam that's very confusing and puzzling. Uh, but if we can do things that are high quality and evidence-based and do them in an efficient fashion, you know, we stand to get more people staying healthy longer. Thank you. I'd like to thank our guest, Dr. John Henning Schumann, president of the University of Oklahoma, Tulsa, 
and an internal medicine physician, primary care, for being our guest today. We hope to see you here next month. Our guest will be Dr. William Piva, uh, not a prescribing, a philosophizing kind of doctor from Oklahoma State University. He's going to be talking about some other healthcare innovations he's working on. So with that, thank you very much for attending and listening, and we will see you next month. We hope you've enjoyed the time with our very own Dr. Stan for 360 Degrees of Healthcare with Dr. Stan Schwartz, a part of Zero Studios. Tune in, subscribe, and review our podcast to keep current with the ins and outs of the medical and healthcare industry from the inside out.